Welcome to our C3 Grow podcast. Wherever you are today, we hope that this message encourages you. We'd love to see you in person at one of our three locations, Howick, Ormiston, and Suva. Visit c3grow.org for details. Now this morning, um, I may just, well, say some things that will provoke you. Some of you need provocation, and if you need it, I hope that I will provide it. Uh, I also hope that you will be mature and big-spirited enough to receive it if you need to. Uh, To be right up front this morning, I'm going to be challenging you and encouraging you about your commitment to church gatherings. And this is a message that I think is especially important and especially needed right now in the wake of all of the challenges and the peculiarities of the last three years. Now, if you don't like what I am saying, one of the things that you might say to yourself is something like, well, of course he'd say that. He wants us all in church so that he feels better about himself and I want to be completely honest with you and confess to you that yes as a pastor uh, there's a part of me that sometimes feels better about myself when church attendance is higher than I do when church attendance is lower Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians that we ought to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit Uh, As pastors, we are supposed to teach God's word, preaching Christ, and not ourselves. To be sure, this is a subject and a text in which the teaching of pastors can be contaminated by their own selfish ambition and conceit, whether by a little bit of selfish ambition and conceit, or a lot of selfish ambition and conceit. The risk is there. And by the way, uh, everyone in the church is in trouble when they have a pastor contaminated by a lot of selfish ambition and conceit. So a part of me preparing this message today was a sober self-examination of my own motives to preach it. Honestly, that is one of the most annoying things about preaching. But it's also one of the most rewarding parts of preaching too. I think that when I was younger, selfish ambition and conceit contaminated my leadership to a greater degree than it does today. I think that I cared about church attendance for the wrong reasons to a greater degree than I do today. I think that today, by God's grace, for me, this is a small voice that pipes up every once in a while. It's not a dominant motive. Honestly, my greater driving concern is for God's glory and for your good. Above all, I want to faithfully and boldly preach the word. And I want you to grow up in every way into Christ. 
Now, with that being said, one of the ideas that is constant in the letter of Hebrews, in fact, it is an idea that is clear and evident throughout Scripture, is the idea that our perseverance in the Christian life of faith is really the litmus test of the authenticity of our profession of faith. In other words, it's easy to make a profession of faith, and it's easy enough to appear as if your profession of faith was genuine, for a time at least. But the true test of a person's faith is whether or not they will actually persevere in life according to their profession of faith all the way to the end. That isn't to say that they live their lives by faith perfectly or unwaveringly without bouts with doubt or momentary crises of faith. It is to say that the authenticity of a person's faith is something that is proven as it bears out over time. Generally, the life of faith is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Now think of it this way. On the first day of October, way back in 2005, I made vows to Dawn, vows to love her, to honour her, and to be faithful to her. When I made those vows to her, I made them zealously. I had every intention of fulfilling them. But the true test as to whether or not I would fulfil these vows or not would not be how I behaved on that day. You wouldn't follow me out to the car on my wedding day and watch me obligatorily opening the door for my new bride and say, yep, there it is, there it is, he's done it. He's proven himself to be a loving, honouring, faithful husband, just as he pledged a few minutes ago that he would be. Right? Nor would the true test of my genuineness of commitment be how I behaved on our honeymoon or in the first five years or ten years or fifty years of marriage. In our vows we pledged our lives to one another until death parts us. The only point then at which you could say for certain that I have definitively fulfilled the vows that I made in 2005 is when death separates us. If at that point I had been a loving, honourable, faithful husband, although imperfect, then you could say, yep, he honoured and fulfilled those vows. Now, like marriage, the Christian life is a covenant relationship that requires marathon perseverance. It requires maintenance, just like marriage. It requires repentance, just like marriage. It requires careful attention. 
And this is what we see the author of Hebrews say here. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. I hope you're there. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's this possibility that without close attention paid to our faith, we will drift. Now, I really appreciate the word drift there. That's a great word. There's a subtlety to it that I think is really valuable. It doesn't say we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we suddenly crash. Because the danger presented to our perseverance generally is not a sharp, dramatic turn of events. The danger is a drift. It's a float. It's a waft. It's a wander. Verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Again, the danger is not a sharp, dramatic turn of events. It's negligence. It's disregard. It's carelessness, inattentiveness, until eventually this person's faith is found to be in a state of terminal disrepair. Their lack of upkeep becomes their downfall. Now, if you look over in the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, we'll read verse 12 through to verse 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice that word if, there in verse 14. That word if is a small word that carries a lot of weight. If we want to share in Christ, and we do, right? That's why we're here. If we want to share in Christ, then we need to hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's the litmus test. Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about never wrestling with doubt. We're not talking about never wavering in any kind of unbelief. We are talking about reaching the end of our lives, whenever that may be. Whatever trials our life may contain, we want to reach the end of our lives and have it stamped by God as having been a life in which we persevered all the way to the end in faith. If you've been around for a little while, you probably would have seen people who start off their lives of faith with a bang. A lot of zeal, a lot of enthusiasm, passion, 
big grandiose vows. It's exciting. Should be. They're excited, we're excited, everyone's excited. But the next thing you know, they're gone. Paul says to the Galatians, and I love this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. It really is an astonishing thing. We should be astonished. It is astonishingly disappointing, but it is astonishing nonetheless that one could have Christ presented to them so clearly and fall away so quickly. Now Jesus told a parable about exactly this kind of phenomenon. Come with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and uh, we'll read from verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, the disciples needed some explanation as to exactly what Jesus was saying here. And also why he spoke in parables instead of just speaking plainly. And so Jesus explains why he employs parables and then uh, he interpreted the parable plainly, which is good luck for us. And so we read from verse 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And that's why we need to present the gospel plainly, so that people can understand it, and so respond with faith. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Okay, we see that. As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. That's sobering, isn't it? 
It should be. There are all kinds of threats to the life of faith. Some are obvious, some are subtle. The very real risk in succumbing to these threats is that we may miss out on our share in Christ. And what we desperately need to do in order to persevere to the end is let our roots go down deeply into good soil. We cannot afford to drift, we cannot afford to wander, we cannot afford to neglect our spiritual life, being distracted off the course of faith, even by good things. And let's be honest, just as many, if not more, are distracted off course by good things, as those who are distracted off course by temptations of gross sin and immorality. Okay, here's where we arrive at our text for today. Don't worry, this isn't the beginning of the sermon. This is just when we arrive at our main text. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We're going to look at verse uh, 19 through to 25. Pay particular attention to verses 23 to 25. That's our main text for this morning. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I want to be honest, the thing that uh, attracted me uh, to this passage to preach this morning in our Drawing Near series is the two drawing nears in that text. But the more I studied it, the more I was just absolutely blown away by everything that's in here. Let's not neglect to meet together. Some have fallen into the habitual neglect of the thing that should actually be their life-giving habit. And there are degrees to this neglect. Now let me run through three degrees of neglect that I can see. The first is the stark neglect of a total abandonment of meeting together. Now, Dawn and I uh, were recently in Taupo, and we ran into a couple that we knew from church 10 plus years ago. Beautiful couple, uh, nice people, uh, good values, beautiful young kids, great parents. And uh, we caught up, and eventually the question was asked, are you at a church? And their answer was, nah, we're, we're kind of just doing our own thing. Now again... 
It's not like they're shaking their fist at Jesus. It's not like they are denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. They're not caught up in some kind of gross immorality. They are delightful people. They are good, upstanding citizens. They seem to have a good marriage. They seem to be good parents. They're engaged in a good cause or two. I'm certain that they recycle. Absolutely certain that they recycle. Right? They're good citizens. But the author of Hebrews does not say, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, unless, of course, you're just doing your own thing, in which case, you know, just keep doing that. I don't want to be uncharitable. I don't want to make too much of an off-the-cuff comment in passing. But just doing your own thing is about the epitome of sin and rebellion. It is. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay. So here's a question that is asked quite often at this point. Do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Do you have to go to church to be a Christian? It's a question that is unhelpfully framed, just like that. I reckon disingenuously so. Going to church is not what makes a person a Christian. It's not. Literally nobody that has any kind of basic understanding of the gospel thinks that it is. A person is saved... By hearing the gospel and responding to it with faith. That can happen in a church. It can happen across a table. It can happen on the street. It can happen online. Whatever. The venue for this is not critical. The message and the response is critical. Nobody with a basic understanding of salvation thinks that going to church is what makes you a Christian. Nobody's saying that. I'm not saying that today. But once a person is a Christian, they need to be, and they should want to be, in an edifying, faith-building environment and community in order for them to grow in grace and in order for them to persevere in faith. Amen. No church, certainly not ours, with a pastor like yours, is going to provide a perfect environment. In the church, we will sin against one another. Others will sin against us. That's disappointing. But the disappointments of the church not living up to its vows perfectly ought not to cause us to abandon her or divorce her or knock us into a world in which, as C.S. Lewis puts it so well, we are lost in niceness. Lost in niceness. That's where my friends are. Just doing our own thing. 
Now here's one of the appeals and thus one of the dangers of just doing your own thing. When you pull away from meeting together regularly with the community of believers and it's just you and God, God suspiciously starts to agree with just about everything that you say all of the time. And the reason why God is suddenly so agreeable and so amenable is because you have cut yourself off from one of the key ways that God speaks. That is, through a diverse body with different gifts, different perspectives, who use them as good stewards of God's varied grace. Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Verse 14. This is way more profound than we appreciate at first reading. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 12. For the body does not consist of one member. Hello. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, this would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. At least it should be. That right there is the death of just doing our own thing. Now, that's the first degree of neglect that I can see. The stark neglect of a total abandonment of meeting together. Actually, uh, because it's stark and because it's obvious, and also because you're here in a cyclone, no less, uh, it's not actually my greatest concern for you this morning. My primary concern is for two more subtle degrees of neglect that I can see. So I'll just say what those are, and then I'm going to try to speak into them for the rest of my time this morning. The second degree of neglect that I can see is the more subtle neglect of an irregularity in meeting together. Okay? Here, uh, you're here just enough uh, to satisfy your rich for piety, or your rich for being perceived to be pious, but you're not enough to sustain a growing life of faith. And then there's the third degree of neglect that I can see. It's perhaps the most subtle degree of neglect. It is the neglect of hypocrisy in meeting together. Here, uh, by all out outward appearances, uh, you are, as they say, on fire. You are fervent, you are committed, you're doing all this stuff, but it's all a bit of a show. 
That's not genuine. Okay? These are people who Isaiah and Jesus describes as being those who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him, and they exist. People like this exist. So, what do we say to these people? Both the irregular and the hypocritical, and for that matter, the absent. The habitually absent, that is, not those who just happen to be absent today. What do we say? Well, there's many things that we could say. But I want to spend the rest of my time just saying one thing. It's not actually the thing that I wanted to say. Uh, I plan to just say some gen generally encouraging things. I planned to uh, maybe elevate uh, the benefits of gathering together uh, to convince you as to why you should make it a priority. But then as I studied this text and I felt compelled and led by the Spirit to do this, because it's such a strong word, but it's staring me in the face. I'm going to say it a few different ways. The first thing, the first way that I'll say it is like this. Make every effort in 2023 not to be counted among those categories. Not to be counted among the absent or the irregular or the hypocritical. Make every effort. It takes effort. You know that. You made a big effort to get here today. So if you're absent, make every effort to be present. If you're irregular, make every effort to be regular. If you're hypocritical, make every effort to get your heart right. Now I know that's straightforward talking, but Hebrews is pretty straightforward as well. And it may seem a bit strong, but Hebrews is pretty strong as well. And it's about to get stronger. Listen to the warning which immediately follows verses 23 and 25 of chapter 10. And be careful how you listen. I'm going to unpack it more in just a second. But we're going to read from verses 23 to 29. As we do, I want you to notice the word for in verse 26. What that word means is what the author says from verse 26 is directly connected to what he has just said in verses 23 to 25. That's what captivated me. This is Bible nerd stuff, don't worry. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. <laughs> Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Four. Okay, it's a bridge word. If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Now here's what grabbed me straight away. 
it seems like such a sharp left turn. Okay, it's like the tone is just generally pastoral ex exhortation, encouragement, and then we just take the sharp turn, and it seems like now we're into really harsh, heavy, severe warnings. What do we make of that? So I thought the most helpful way uh, to make sense of that is to zero in on one phrase. In verse 29, we don't want to be the ones to whom it is ultimately and authoritatively said, they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. They have trampled underfoot the Son of God. What exactly does that mean? Again, be careful how you hear this. Appreciate the nuance. Just as nobody is saying that going to church is what makes you a Christian, nobody is saying that absenteeism or irregularity in gathering itself amounts to trampling underfoot the Son of God. Nobody's saying that. It's not that simple. But again, the word for at the beginning of verse 26 implies that there is some kind of link. So how do we think about this? Well, here's what I did. This is one of the things that I do when I don't really understand the text. To understand what it means, I think that we are greatly helped by other occasions in which the same Greek word is used in the New Testament. And I found two very helpful usages. For example, We've been in Matthew 5 this whole month as we've looked at the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, come with me, come with me back to Matthew 5. Really lean in here, another five or so minutes. Matthew 5 and verse 13. Jesus says this, what does it mean to trample underfoot the Son of God? Okay, Matthew 5 verse 13, Jesus says... You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What gets trampled? The good-for-nothing salt that doesn't have any value anymore. It's no longer good for anything. It's lost its saltiness. Throw it out, trample it. Right? A couple of chapters over, Matthew 7, verse 6. It says, Do not give to the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. And turn to attack you. Again, what gets trampled? Holy things are given to animals who don't value them and don't appreciate them, so they trample them, right? Are you starting to get it? Now, Paul does the opposite thing of trampling underfoot the Son of God. Philippians 3. Philippians 3. Paul says this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So for Paul, he had all of these good things going for him. He had all of these things that could have given him identity and meaning and status and purpose and confidence. He lists them like a resume in verses 5 and 6. And they are not bad things. They're good things. But he says all of these good things are like garbage to him now compared to the, uh, the prospect and the joy of getting to know Christ and getting to gain Christ, getting to share in Christ. Now here's where I land this point. You'll be happy to know. Prioritize your faith. Amen. Treasure it. Put it above and before other good things in your life. Don't treat it as if it's a common thing. Like pearls in front of pigs. And useless salt thrown out to be trampled. Don't fit it around other stuff and fit it around other plans. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let's hold fast the confession of faith without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now at this point, we could apply this exhortation to any of the spiritual disciplines that sustain and develop our Christian life. Prioritizing prayer over an extra 30 minutes of sleep. Prioritizing fasting over food. Prioritizing time in the Word over time on Netflix or Instagram. Okay, it all works. It all works. But for whatever reason, the author of Hebrews chose at this moment to say, don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to meet together. Treasure Christ together. Grow in faith together. So again, I know the last few years have been disorientating. I know that they have had a scattering effect. I get it. Uh, the lockdowns in particular uh, de-established our, our gathering habits a bit. But I want you to hear me. And I want you to trust me on my motives here. I'm for you. I want you to grow. I want you to be blessed. I want for your health and happiness. If you're absent, make every effort to be present. If you're a regular, become regular. If you're hypocritical, get your heart right. There's so much for you to gain in Christ. So let's go after it in 2023. Let's go after it. Personally, privately, and corporately, publicly, let's make every effort. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has blessed you. For more information about our church, you can find us online at c3road.org.